0: Good morning, church. Does seem that my mic is, in fact, on. (laughs) I'm so blessed to be in this room today. Um, Before we jump into it, I just want to say thank you. Um, Every morning, every Sabbath morning that I walk in these doors, I feel like I'm home. And it's not just the building, it's every one of you. Thank you for being a spiritual home that we can all be a part of together. Just feel so blessed this morning. And I want to start off by asking you what or more accurately who you think of when you think of a life of service. When I started thinking about it, the first person that came to mind for me was Mother Teresa. Um, Actually, for almost everyone I asked, it was Mother Teresa. Um, But I also thought of Dorcas, um, women who gave up everything just to care for others. But when I spent some more time thinking about it, um, I thought about Moses. Moses gave up princehood for a life of service. I thought of Elijah and the prophets, people who gave up literally any semblance of a normal life, um, peace and security, to honor God and follow in his ways. Um, But maybe you would also think of someone in your life that has exemplified a life of service to you. And for me, that person was a wonderful woman named Shirley. I met Shirley at church, and as I grew up, she became one of my absolute favorite people to run into. She was the kind of person whose smile lights up a room, chases away the rainy days. Um, Her voice is just always lifted up in encouragement. You could hear her from anywhere in the church. Um, and she was always plotting new ways to uplift those who needed it. She was truly a church matriarch. and If you know one, you know what I'm talking about. You could always count on her to challenge us to a higher standard in the way that we reflected Christ. Her resiliency and optimism were only amplified to those who knew the truth. Shirley had cancer. She had decided against medical treatment. She fought it so long and so valiantly that only someone who knew what to look for would have known. And as the sickness wore away at her physical form, she only worked harder, organizing safe spaces for children in need, pulling at the heartstrings of our community together in worship and never dwelling on her difficult circumstances, always stepping into spaces as an agent of healing, even though she had none. For herself. She had every reason to pull away, to say it was too much, but instead of keeping her precious remaining time to herself, she gave it freely in a true reflection of Christ. Shirley led an undeniable and unabashed life of service not out of spiritual obligation, because if she gave out of spiritual obligation, there's no way that she could have mustered the strength to give what time she had left the way that she did. No, she gave out of the great joy and the great love she took from her relationship with Jesus. A life of service is often viewed as a life of servitude, bound to endless altruistic commitments taken on due to some holy guilt, but a life of service can be so much more. It is rejoicing daily in the committing of our lives to our savior, knowing that each moment he guides us will result in blessings for us and blessings for others. A life lived in service to Christ means in equal parts we find freedom and rest, even in our hardest efforts. If you have a Shirley in your life, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you're still in need of examples, I believe that not many in history have exemplified this kind of life of service better than Mary, mother of Jesus. Mary's life was not an easy one, far from it. She sacrificed so much, she indeed did commit herself to a kind of servitude as mother of the Savior, which is perhaps the single most important task God has ever imparted on a human being. But Mary wasn't weighed down or held back by these circumstances. Instead, she took her new normal in stride. She found reasons for joy, and she moved forward with purpose and with grace every day. Her story begins in Luke 1, 26 through 28, which says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, "'Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you.'" Right off the bat, we find God seeing Mary's godliness in a way that the world around her does not. Because Mary was engaged to be married, we know that she was likely a teenager, I would estimate around 16 years old. And we know that Nazareth was not a wealthy community by any means, certainly not a Roman community. In Mary's culture, she would have been considered inconsequential, someone with her age their gender, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, identifying them as lowly and humble at best. But God identifies a steadfast resilience and a genuine heart for good in the one that the world has cast aside. This greeting, you who are highly favored, Is one that would not have been attributed to Mary by anyone else alive at her time. This was a phrase reserved for the notable and for the powerful, but God's representative Gabriel looks at this young girl and calls her for who she is over what the world has told her to be. A life of service impacts more than just our actions. Committing our service And our being to God is entrusting our very identity into his hands. God sees beyond any labels given to us by others or by ourselves. And he sees our inerrant worth and value. He calls us to live by that standard over the ones we have been dealt in our earthly life. Over the course of this entire series, we've witnessed examples of this radical shift that occurs when individuals place who they are in the hands of their redeemer. David started his life in the sheep pastures, and he died a king, the man after God's own heart. Joseph lived by the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law, as Pastor Patty told us last week. And he went from a nameless carpenter lost to history To the man who raised the Messiah and Mary, a young girl from a lowly town, the mother of the Savior. God always defines us better than we do ourselves. We might not receive an angel in our living room telling us exactly what God thinks of us. Maybe you have. I haven't. Please tell me about it. Um, But because we know that Jesus saw fit to die for each and every one of us, I think it's safe to say that God truly believes each one of us to be highly favored on account of our intrinsic worth and our unique character designed specifically by him. And yet I acknowledge that while it's one thing to commit our identity to God, it's another thing entirely to discover for ourselves as individuals what it means to lead a Christly life of service. I believe each one of us has something that moves us deeply, and God can take that and transform it into something that we use to move others as well. It takes the commitment and patience of a lifetime to uncover these holy purposes God has gifted us. The angel moment is dazzling, but beginning to dig into what it means to find our path and realizing our dreams and goals for a life of service That can be daunting. It's a walk by faith kind of movement through life. And I think Mary exemplified this so well. Luke 1 46 through 55 finds Mary pregnant with Jesus and she's visiting her cousin Elizabeth who is pregnant with John the Baptist at the time. And it would be easy to think that because Mary knows she is carrying her savior, the son of God, It would make sense for her to be joyful and lighthearted. Her salvation is here. But we know that Mary was about to enter the terrifying time of being both unmarried and pregnant in a society that viewed this status as a death sentence. So not only is Mary cemented into a life of worldly shame, but she knew it would take a miracle to even keep her alive long enough to bring Jesus into the world. And yet, all Mary finds for God is praise. And in this beautiful psalm, all her own, Mary says these words. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one, has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary, an endangered pregnant teenager, destined for a life of sorrow, says with full confidence, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. No one at her time could have predicted it, but she was right because I'm here, thousands of years later, telling you how blessed Mary was. She had the foresight Many in her time did not. But I have to wonder what kind of life Mary envisioned for herself and for her unborn child. Because based on the prophecies regarding Jesus coming, um, many expected him to be a judge, uh, a worldly liberator, a leader. And I wonder if Mary was given the foresight to see beyond those cultural stereotypes. I wonder if maybe she saw him as a Samson breaking down Roman authority with brute strength. Or maybe she saw him as Moses, proudly bringing his people from exile and liberating them from oppression. Maybe she likened him to his forefather, David, equally skilled in the palace and on the battlefield, and her by his side, queen mother. Is there any way she could have anticipated that the fulfillment of messianic prophecy would manifest in a nomadic rabbi, radical unto death in his gospel and his love for us. What Mary may not have understood then and what we must learn today is that when we give, there will be gain. And that gain will often look nothing like what we hoped to gain when we embarked on the journey of service in the first place. But it will be better. This process of continuously adjusting our expectations of what service will bring to our lives as our hopes are dashed or unrealized reminds me of a movie that I watched over and over as a kid. My mom and I share many things and one of those is a love for old rom-coms. And one of our favorites to watch together is the 1986 film The Money Pit with Tom Hanks. This movie opens on Walter and Anna. They are a beautiful young couple. They are just beginning their lives together, and they are looking for their first home. And they're lured into this quick sale. They're told the house is worth millions, and it's way less than that, and they're so excited. And they sign the papers, and the second they do, things begin to go wrong. The house they once believed to be vintage and charming begins to fall apart before their eyes, and they have been conned. Every time they think they have it under control, the bathtub falls through the ceiling, or the kitchen explodes in electrical fire, or the renovation crew goes on strike until they can shell out more cash. And this once happy couple begins to bicker under the weight of crushed hopes and dreams until it seems they may give up on the house and on each other. But there is redemption, as there is in all classic rom-coms, Um, And instead of cracking under the pressure, they adjust their expectations and they learn to communicate honestly. And their story ends with their wedding in front of their brand new restored money pit. It's a much different house than the charming vintage one they fell in love with. But that doesn't matter because the house is now a story, a testament to the strength of their characters as individuals and the love they share. It's not what they expected, but it's more than they could have dreamed. Mary lived a life of pain and loss that she probably never could have anticipated as she faithfully mothered her savior. And she could have allowed that frustration from unrealized expectations to build and take over, and none of us would have blamed her. But instead, she allowed her expectations for the ending of her story to be rewritten anew every single day that she spent in the presence of Jesus. I think Jesus' dedication in the temple after his birth in Luke 2 is a good example of a change in expectations for Mary. Um, Mary and Joseph are at the temple. They are dedicating Jesus. This is the custom um, in the time, and um, Simeon is a man who is very devout, and he's been waiting for the Messiah, and God has told him that he's not going to die until he meets the Messiah, and he's very old, and he's very tired, and he walks into the temple. He sees Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and he runs over, and he snatches Jesus out of their arms, and he's praising, and he's yelling, and he's excited, and this is not normal for temple dedications, No old men coming in and snatching babies and, you know, running around and holding them up. That's not normal. So Mary and Joseph are getting excited, like, oh, we knew our kid was special, but someone else is telling us that he's special, and we like to hear that too. And they're happy, and they're rejoicing, but there's this shift in tone when Simeon turns to Mary and speaks specifically to her in verses 34 and 35, and he says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, too. I wonder how often Mary thought that metaphorical blade had fallen. It could have been as she tucked her toddler closer to her as they fled death from Bethlehem towards Egypt in the early hours, the cries of Rachel's daughters following her into the morning. Maybe it was as she raced around Jerusalem calling frantically for a young boy who was sitting calmly in a temple at the top of the city, teaching the wisest what they did not know. Maybe it was when she recoiled at the words, woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. When she tried with an honest heart to encourage Jesus towards the future God had in store for him. And I must assume that she wept every single day that her precious son wandered through the desert without food, his soul struck low in cosmic turmoil, every day that he spent healing the masses with no rest for himself, and every day that she heard the cryptic whispers from high places calling for his demise. When we reflect on the secondhand suffering that Mary endured at the hands of her calling, we can't help but wonder what part of human strength and motherly resilience steeled her to withstand this violent and blessed life she was given. It calls into question what a life of service really is, because service in the way we think about it today could not hope to shed light on this situation. Today's world, presents service as a checklist of possible benevolent engagements. But for Mary, a life of service entailed a heart that said, I give my heart for the healing of the world, knowing it will be broken. A mind that said, my steadfastness will be an anchor to my community. And a soul that said, in its deepest depths, I know, that when I do the part I have committed to, God works his ways through mine so that salvation itself is unleashed in my life and in the lives of others. The strength to say yes to a life of service of this caliber cannot simply be derived from mere obligation. No, this kind of strength is the kind that can only be drawn from the source of ultimate sacrifice itself. Mary may have been young, with no idea what on earth she was getting into when she gave her future away to God, but never once did she shy away from a challenge thrown her way on behalf of the role she played in Jesus' life. She brought him up with grace, modeling a life of devotion and pure, joyful connection to God. She followed Jesus' paths unceasingly, even, unto the cross, and as she knelt weeping before her very own son, as he gasped his last, even then she did not allow her pain to pull her away from the very essence of service to her child and her savior. If there ever was a singular time that that soul would have pierced her soul, as Simeon had said, it must have been the hours spent at Golgotha. I'm not a parent myself but I have two incredible parents and watching them guide my brother and I through life has taught me that when I experience pain, the level of empathy they hold towards me causes them to experience that pain right alongside me. And in preparation for this week, I was reading through the prophecies of Isaiah predicting Christ's coming and one verse stood out to me in particular when I thought, about that connection between parents and their children. Isaiah 53.3 says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Who better to relate to this than Mary, cast out of her community for carrying the Son of God feeling each pain of Jesus's, emotional and physical, like it was her own, remaining at the scene of the crucifixion, unable to look away and find relief from the suffering. And it struck me so deeply that I know every time I read this verse from here on out, it will be Mary I think of as well as Jesus, the experience of motherhood intertwining her torment with his. She was despised and rejected by mankind a woman of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. She was despised and held in low esteem. But let us not leave Mary in her distress, because we know, as followers of Christ, that the lowest places of the world are the most extravagant opportunities for redemption. Jesus' story didn't end on the cross, neither did Mary's, neither does yours or mine. As deep was Mary's suffering at the cross, how much greater must have been her joy when she saw her son reincarnate. We have no biblical record of Christ's meeting with his mother after the resurrection, but it doesn't take the words of an apostle to conjure an image of what a joyous reunion that would have been. Any doubts she may have had the weight of all the suffering she had borne were vanished in the moment she knew her redeemer lives and stands at last upon the earth. I don't think there's any possible way that Mary foresaw at 16 the trials she bore that would lead her to the utter joy of seeing her very own son conquer death and stand before her renewed. The service that she committed to when she said, be it to me as you have said in response to Gabriel. It was holistic, it was life altering, it was unpredictable. And when we give our lives for service to God, for him to work as he will, we experience that redemption. We experience it like none other. First we discover it for ourselves and then it begins to seep from us into the lives around us unbidden. This giving, this yes, it's more than an evening a month spent in outreach or an afternoon spent helping another or a morning dedicated to prayer. It's all those things and more. It is a full and complete surrender to God with the understandings that his callings for us will always edify, they will always build, they will always hold more for us than we ever could have found on our own. This doesn't mean that the journey is safe or comfortable. Sin places stumbling blocks of pain and loss and hopelessness and temptation at every bank in turn, but I would rather walk a tangled path with my hand in Jesus's than a smooth road that leads me nowhere. Our service is not given out of the goodness of our hearts alone. It is given to a God who brings more goodness than we could have ever known, even from our smallest acts. By entrusting these gifts to the one who gave them, our convictions, our strength, our grace bestowed on us by the Savior, we are enabled to our fullest potential for goodness in the world around us. We experience a life of service, we share a life of service, we live it. Because of this, a life of service is one that is more full, one that shakes foundations, one that challenges standards, one that patterns its paths after the steps of Christ and connecting with God for true purpose and protecting the downtrodden and honoring the inerrant value of selfhood amplified by the presence of more. Let your service be more than action. Let it leave the mark of who you are on the world around you. Let it fill you with the knowledge that you were meant for more. Let it be your bowing to a creator who has carefully designed a life meant only for you. Let it be the love of Christ incarnate in you. Let's pray. Dear God, you are good, you are gracious, you have made us for more. Today we follow in the footsteps of Mary in accepting the calling into the goodness of the unknown. We want to further your designs over our own. Empower us for the life of service you have created for each of us. Give us the grace and strength to follow in your ways over ours. Even when they detour from our plans, we are confident that your way is better. We love you.